The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, August 12th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. So Toledo has its drinking water back. Yay! Except for the guy with the exclusive Poland Springs distribution contract. Guess my kids are going to a state school. Will anything stop this from happening again? Unpotable water? Well, there's been lots of reports about phosphorus runoff. Phosphorus runoff leads to algae bloom that kills the oxygen. It ruins water. This has been written up again and again and again. And the attitude so far has been, eh, have a yoo-hoo. But there was a quote the other day from this. This was Donald Moline, the Toledo Commissioner of Public Utilities. And he talks about how there are all these reports and everyone's saying, you know, you're going to ruin the water. And then, as we saw a couple days ago, no water for Toledo. And Donald Moline said, we bring this subject up for conversation with the regulators. Everyone sort of walks out of the room. The whole drinking water community has been raising these issues. And so far, we haven't seen a viable response. And I stopped there and I said, The drinking water community? That's such a close-knit tribe. It's a distinctive band of brothers. Isn't the drinking water community like like everyone? Like everyone who needs to drink water, which is, I think, everyone? Now, I know what he's technically saying is, you know, the community of people whose job it is to actually make sure the water is clean and get people the water through the taps. But really, we're all the drinking water community, and that's a marketing opportunity. Remember, uh, we're all connected, New York telephone. You know what? Maybe if you grew up in Wyoming, you don't remember that. But I got to tell you something. We weren't all connected, but we do all drink water. The DWC, it's you and me, people. This is not a special interest, except insofar as that we are all very, very special. The drinking water community. It is made up of both the footed and the footless. Everyone who inhales or exhales or occasionally does both, you're all the drinking water community. No, not you, camel. Not you, cactus. Wait, what's that? Oh, they just store it for later? Yes, then you too. You all drink water. Join me in the drinking water community. Today in the show, national happiness as a concept. Is that bullshit? And in the spiel, we'll be talking about and remembering Robin Williams playing some great clips, especially one from a 1978 special and a recent episode of uh, Mark Marin's W. WTF. But first, ISIS, they call themselves a caliphate. But if you're a Muslim, what does that really mean to you? ISIS is also called ISIL, and they're self-styled as the Islamic State. Whatever you call them, they're brutal Sunni militants who reportedly crucify their victims and execute scores of prisoners. They're considered harsher than Al-Qaeda. Perhaps it's their harshness that's helped them thus far to gain control of large swaths of Iraq. But they do have something in common with Al-Qaeda. They call for the return of the caliphate. In fact, their leader now claims to be the caliph and says they're establishing a caliphate. The caliphate 
was the Islamic State that existed upon the death of Muhammad. A caliph means successor or representative. The last real one ended 750 years ago, though the Ottoman Empire claimed to be a caliphate. So when the current leader of ISIS calls for the return of the caliphate, what are they really saying? Joining me now, with some Vermont birds and children in the background, is Justin Stearns. He's a professor of history at NYU Abu Dhabi, who wrote the book Infectious Ideas, Contagion in Pre-Modern Islamic and Christian Thought in the Western Mediterranean. Hello, Professor Stearns. Hi, Mike. How are you? Well, does the idea caliphate come with any tangible consequences? Well, a caliphate means we have to establish these kind of courts and this system of governance, or is it more of a notion? It's more of a notion. That is to say, there's no sort of rule book that, uh, that ISIS is referring to or any um, specific set of institutions that they are calling for. It's more of a notion. It's a, it's a claim for uh, authority and legitimacy within the broader Muslim community. It's a, a play that they're trying to make in order to gain more adherence, I would argue. Do you think most regular Muslims who hear this claim really understand what it means? Every Muslim who hears that understands that the person who would call himself caliph is trying to appeal to them and is trying to claim authority in, in some ways uh, Muslim community. So that is certainly understood. What a caliphate actually is, though, is something that very few Muslims today, alive today, have ever experienced. The last um, political body that claimed for itself the right of being a caliphate was the Ottoman Empire, which ended in 1924. So when the leader of ISIS says, I am the new caliph, what's he really saying? That he rejects the modern understanding of a nation-state, and that he believes that people should be organized along religious communities, and predominantly means that Muslims should fall under a type of community, a political community, that harkens back to the early days of Islam, and that he is the legitimate ruler of that community. So the people or groups that I have seen over the years claiming that this is the new caliphate, or at least calling for it, are people like the leader of ISIS, are people like uh, Osama bin Laden, the Taliban. Are there any moderates or people in the Muslim world who would endorse the idea and maybe explain to you that it can fit in with our ideas of modernity? Or is this just more of an impractical, grandiose claim that extremists are attracted to? I would go with the latter. What we see here is are, are people making claims and calling upon uh, religious symbols in order to make a bid for authority and legitimacy it should be remembered that the, cal- the caliphate actually, as a practical institution, ran out of steam a long time ago. You referred to 1258 and the end of the Abbasid Caliphate in your, in your intro. The caliphate initially was supposed to be a single institution which bound the Muslim community together following the, the death of the Prophet Muhammad. And as such, it was not able to actually continue that unity of the Muslim community from the very, very beginning. It, it did do a fairly good job for about 200 years, but... Already by the, the ninth century, it, it, it uh, was beginning to fall apart. And by the 10th century, we have a multiplicity of caliphates in the Muslim world. We have three different caliphates ruling over different parts. And since that time period, it has been clear to most Muslims that making a claim to be caliph is, is a political 
aspiration that comes with certain expectations. I take your point that the Mujahideen were good at using religion to attract adherents, and maybe ISIS is doing this as well. You want to take an American example? John Brown, abolitionists, you know, religious extremists, they inspire fighters. I get that. But do you think that there is a connection between having an ideology like this, an extreme ideology that harkens back to a thousand years, like the Taliban had, like ISIS has, and being actually poor leaders? Because it would seem to me that if you're going to be obsessed with let's live life like the leaders did in the year 1200, it's going to be very hard to deliver basic services and, you know, keep water filtration systems working. Well, there are a number of, of groups, extreme, and I would argue also more moderate, within the Middle East and the Muslim world today, who are inspired by the notion of being able to go back and live life in a fashion as, as the early Muslim community lived it. In some ways, actually, the ruling religious ideology within Saudi Arabia, for example, is such a place where that you have people making that claim at the very same time that you have malls, city, massive cities, entertainment systems, I mean, whatever. That you bring a lot of the technological uh, trappings of modernity along, along with it. I don't think that in and of itself calling for the caliphate should make us uh, believe that ISIS is, uh, is not able to uh, interface with modernity or that it wouldn't be able to run cities and so forth, if, as it already has, so as it's conquered them. What I think is ISIS's greater downfall is that it is so extreme, and it has been so brutal that it has alienated the vast majority of Muslims globally, and also many of them locally in its own area. And as, as it continues to spread, I think its internal dynamics it will suffer because of this. It will have to come, it will have to somehow deal with the fact that it is becoming, uh, beginning to have control over a large number of areas where there are a vast diversity of Muslims and of people of other faith. And that how it deals with that will have a lot to do with whether it is able to, to maintain itself for any substantial period. Justin Stearns, professor of Arab Crossroads Studies at NYU Abu Dhabi. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So the gist is sponsored by Harry's, Harry's maker of fine razor. Here's my story, my personal story with Harry's. You need to know that I've decided to only shave two days a week. Why? I think it looks okay. Why spend all that time shaving? Why spend all that money? Now with Harry's, it's not as much of a deal, the money. I mean, an eight pack of razors costs you, what, $32? But now with Harry's, with Harry's, it's 15 bucks for a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. Now, here's my story. I was asked to be on this MSNBC show, All In with Chris Hayes, and you could watch it today, this day that you hear the gist, and I'll be on the show. But it's not that I just shaved with Harry's. I shaved with Harry's yesterday. They bumped me yesterday. So what you're going to see on the show is what it looks like after you shave with a good quality razor one day after. And I've got to say, it looks pretty good. You know, it's growth. So I want you to know that The Gist has a special coupon for you. If you go to harrys.com now, Harry's will give you $5 off of any product you want with the coupon code the gist with your first purchase that's h a r r y s dot com and enter coupon code the gist at checkout for five dollars off and start better shaving today i want to be happy but i can't be happy till i make you happy too while it's true I bring it up because we're talking about happiness, specifically gross national happiness, measures of if countries and the populations thereof or they're in are happier than each other. We're going to do this using the best scientific methodology available. So joining me now is Maria Konnikova, 
Hello, Maria. Hi, Mike. Maria studies studies. She writes for The New Yorker, and she comes on the gist to play Is That Bullshit? And today we'll be examining the concept of national happiness. There are a lot of ways to measure national happiness, and a lot of countries are doing it, right, Maria? Yeah. Um, just in the last few minutes, I've been able to find at least five different measures just with a very quick Google search. Every country wants to know how happy its population is, but we don't really have a good way of going about it. Right. I'm on the website for the World Database of Happiness, which is run by Ruth Wienhoven at Erasmus University in Rotterdam. And they basically have the statistics for every country in the world. And they ask a survey question like, taken all together, how satisfied or dissatisfied are you with your life as a whole these days? And you can find it over time and you can compare country to country. And so, for instance, I'm on Finland right now. Average happiness in Finland, 7.9 out of 10. Costa Rica is the highest with 8.5 out of 10. Then they have something called happy life years. Again, Costa Rica, 66.7 years of a Costa Rican's life is happy, whereas 62.2 years of a Finnish person's life is happy. <laughs> Let's compare it to right next on the list is France, notoriously less happy than they should be if you look at economics. Yeah, and the French have an average happiness of 6.6 .6 and only 53 happy years. Any value to any of this? I actually think there is some value in the sense that, first, it's always asking the same question. And so as much as that question captures, we can start looking at differences. And you might be capturing something about the national character. For instance, the French might just not like to express happiness quite as much. They like to be perceived as yes. a little bit more blasé. So when you ask them how French happy... French word. French word. Exactly. Goes, goes exactly to your point. <laughs> that, that does go... But so is joie de vivre, so that's the counterpoint. <laughs> that is true. That yeah. is true. <laughs> and so if you ask how happy are you, they'll be like, oh, psh, you know. I mean, I'm sure that if you ask Russians, Russians will never say I'm great when you ask how are you doing. And instead, they'll they'll say, oh, okay, that's about the best answer you can get. Russia, 5.5. <laughs> happy years of a Russian's <laughs> life, 36.1. Yep. There you go. Nailing it. So I think that what we might be capturing instead of people's actual inner happiness is these sorts of national differences in attitudes, which is also incredibly interesting. And I think it... It's almost self-perpetuating in the sense that, well, if you keep saying that I'm not that happy, then maybe you really are less happy as a nation because that's your attitude toward life. So it's a really interesting question, and it's very hard to put those things apart and try to see, well, how happy are these people really? So defining happiness, which I guess you have to do if you're going to define gross national happiness, is a hard, if not impossible, thing to do. Very subjective. So here's how the Bhutanese defined it, because uh, they do, they are the only country with a gross national happiness index. It was developed by their fourth dragon king. And they uh, based it on some Buddhist principles. The four pillars of gross national happiness are the promotion of sustainable development, the preservation and promotion of cultural values, the conservation of natural environment, and the establishment of good governance. I can't object, but what if an Estonian, a Frenchman, or a Gabonese person finds happiness in some other way? I kind of think that's a hilarious definition because he's basically saying what makes a happy country. He's personifying the country and saying, hey, I'm happy if I'm ecologically diverse. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, that's a very funny concept. You know, I, I know that they have all these uh, experiments where they could 
monitor your brain. And I know scientists are very suspicious of, I mean, the, when you see the brain light up, it looks exciting, but you talk to scientists, they're like, that's kind of limited. But maybe we do better off not asking people of their own opinions, right? Maybe we do better off monitoring where the dopamine is flowing or something that's a lot more empirical. I mean, you know, maybe we should just define happiness physically. Is that even possible? Well, that is possible in one sense. Um, and that's in the same sense that um, Joseph Ledoux defined fear when he was trying to figure out, well, how do I define this thing? And so he took out all the emotional elements and said, okay, I'm just going to define it as this response of a certain part of my brain, the amygdala, to a scary stimulus. And in that sense, we do have correlates of happiness. So when someone is more satisfied, there are certain pleasure centers of the brain that are much more active. And you can really tell if someone, you know, if I were to just look at brain scans of people as a as someone who studies effective neuroscience, I'd be able to say, okay, this person's in pain. Mm -hmm. This person is happy. This person is enjoying his glass of wine more than this person is enjoying his glass of wine. Mm -hmm. So you can definitely see those types of satisfactions. The interesting question is, does it matter if the person doesn't subjectively experience it? So we do get the subjective measure in the brain, but then that has to be filtered out through their own experience. So they might say, I'm enjoying this, but you know what? I've had better. And all of a sudden... They say, oh, this was an okay glass of wine. And it's a very interesting question. So as soon as you start putting the subjectivity back in, it starts muddying the waters. But if we wanted to go the Ledoux way, I think that's totally legitimate and totally doable. The way we think of making people happier in America is mostly making people wealthier. And uh, perhaps in some Scandinavian countries is a little more exalted than that. You know, something having to do with the collective. But maybe these happiness studies and measures of national happiness will reveal that certain things, certain policies correlate more to happiness than other policies. Absolutely. If we gather enough data points, we can start looking at those sorts of correlations. And I think that that could be incredibly valuable. But once again, you have to just be very, very careful to say that these are the things that are actually causing happiness. Because for instance, Scandinavia, if you look at those nations, while they're incredibly homogenous when it comes to their population, most people in Norway are Norwegian, most people in Sweden are Swedish, right. and their government policies can be shaped accordingly. And so we have to be very, very wary of trying to export something that seems to be correlating with happiness from one country to another. Where it might be a little bit more helpful is to say, look, this country, Costa Rica, is the happiest country in the world. Is it the richest country in the world? Right. No, no. no, not by a long shot. In that sense, we can start saying, hey, well, look, maybe some of the things that we traditionally associate with happiness, like wealth, actually aren't as associated. So I think you can make the reverse argument a little bit better. All right. So let's issue our verdict. Measures of national happiness. Is that bullshit? They're bullshit in, insofar as they don't, I don't think, actually capture national happiness. They're not bullshit in the sense that they might give us some other interesting information, just not about how happy a nation is. All right, Maria, I rate you high in interview satisfaction, off the charts in education, and, you know, fair to middling in community. So these are all measures of ha the happiness that you've brought us today. Uh, well, thanks. I mean, I'm doing okay, but I'm Russian. Yeah, you're Russian. That's as best as you could do. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. Maria Konnikova plays Is That Bullshit with us on Issues of Science and covers Issues of Science for The New Yorker.
And now the spiel. So a little bit after we posted the show yesterday, the news broke about the death of Robin Williams. And that first wave of remembrances reminded me of some of the great things about him. His energy, range, and kindness. Words like wild, magical, and inspirational. Those words were everywhere yesterday, and they were apt. I wanted to add just a couple of things to remember this guy who was so talented, so appealing, and so humane. I like Robin Williams the moment I saw him as Mork from Ork. There is a scene where a tough guy in a bar tells Mork to back up, and he plays the minute that we had just seen entirely in reverse. Oh my God, it was so great. So I sought out his stand-up and came across this. This is from a 1978 HBO special. And what I love about this is it shows how daring Robin Williams was. He was manic. I literally do think he was bipolar, but as a performer, you get the sense that he wanted to take the audience to the edge of confusion. He was like this hummingbird that had let itself loose in their collective brains. He eventually found himself bonking against the insides, and only then did he know it was time to settle down. So, so far in this special, he's played a blues man, a faith healer, a small child, and a sperm. His harmonica playing was accomplished. The crowd work was flawless. The miming was very skilled. And now, what's this? He's Mr. Rogers. Let's put Mr. Hamster in the microwave. <laughs> Pop goes the weed. You know why I did that, boys and girls? Because we're all going to die of severe radiation. But then, while still in character, he starts accurately describing what's going on with the once howling audience. It's not a bad thing. Oh no, I've lost you. I've gone too far, too early, too quick. I'm in the land where nothing's funny now. Then he pulls an audience member onto the stage and adopts a new persona of an affected director, then a prop master, briefly a dwarf, and then he lapses into Shakespeare and we're off. Last week, we aired a piece about comedians and mental health. Amy Solomon, who recently graduated from Princeton, wrote her thesis on the subject, and she talked about it on our show. This part didn't air. So she's talking about how comedians seek out the perfect embodiment of this idea that they're imbalanced, but they also want to celebrate their imbalance. And who represents that embodiment? Today, so many comedians are like, I'm bipolar, I have this, I have this going on. But it's this conception we have about them. You have this conception that Robin Williams is like a madman, and it seems like the community has embraced that concept of itself. Interestingly, Robin Williams was such a great comedic performer that one might gloss over the fact that, technically speaking, he probably shouldn't be considered a great stand-up, insofar as you can't quote great Robin Williams lines. But still, he was one of the people you would most like to see on stage. Last night, Mark Marin posted his 2010 interview with Williams. It was episode 67 of the great WTF podcast. Up to that point, it was the most important interview Marin had ever done and the most revealing Robin Williams had ever been. You don't seem to me someone who's like morbidly fascinated or, no. or, or, or hung up on death. No, so, I mean, that's weird. I mean, when I was drinking, there was only one time, even for a moment, where I thought, oh, fuck life. And right. And I went like, <laughs> then even my conscious brain went, did you honestly just say fuck life? I went, you know, you, you have a pretty good life as it is right now. Have you noticed the two houses? Yes. Have you noticed the uh, the girlfriend? Yes. 
Uh, you, have you noticed that, you know, things are pretty good, even though you may not be working right now? Yes? Okay, let's uh, put the suicide over here on discussable. Let's leave that over here in the, the discussion area. We'll talk about that. Do, first of all, you don't have the balls to do it. I'm not going to say it out loud. I mean, have you thought about buying a gun? No. What were you going to do? Like cut your wrist with a water pick? Maybe. So that's erosion. What are you thinking about that? So can I put this over here in the what the fuck category? Yes, let's put that over here in what the fuck. Because can I ask you what you're doing right now? You're sitting naked in a hotel room with a bottle of Jack Daniels? Yes. Is, is this maybe influencing your decision? Possibly. Okay, we're going to put that over here, and tomorrow morning... And who's that in the bed there? I don't know. Okay, well, don't discuss this with her, because she may tweet it. Okay? This may not be good. Let's put that over here in the what-the-fuck category. We're going to put that over here, possibly for therapy, if you want to talk about that in therapy, if, or maybe a podcast yeah. two years from now. <laughs> Do you want to talk about it in the podcast? No, I feel safe. Are you ta you're talking about it in the podcast? I know. Who is this? It's your conscience, asshole. Oh. You have to hear the entire interview. It's so good. Marin gets into the issue of plagiarism that chased Williams. The very believable explanation is that Robin Williams was a filterless performer, and sometimes other people's jokes would just pop out of his mouth. So he started paying for the jokes, and he stopped going to clubs. Marin also brought up the subject of how other performers looked down on him. And there was, in fact, a lot of comedy snobbery around Robin Williams. And there was another complaint about Williams, that his impressions of celebrities, but more importantly, his impressions of different ethnicities or of gay men were often broad. But everything about him was broad. He did them with love. He wasn't the best impressionist of Arnold Schwarzenegger or a fussy choreographer or a street tough or a Frenchman. But no one else could do an impression of all those guys within a 45-second span. Robin Williams was frantic and breathtaking. He was a very solid, dramatic actor. He basically started the trend of celebrities breathing life and excitement into cartoon characters. Only his performance as the genie in Aladdin was the only time when the voice actor didn't play the character. The cartoon tried to approximate the performer. Like I said, Robin Williams had a lot of humanity. And as we sadly found out yesterday, mortality. And that's it for the show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcast, is a vital member of the cohort of people who find burlap rough, except for the smooth kinds. Mike Volo helped edit today's show. He is in the statistically significant group who enjoys sleeping either in or out of the nude. Andy Bauer is executive producer of Slate Podcast, like sunsets. You can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. iTunes just lost yesterday. But give us a review in iTunes. We're on Facebook.com. Our Twitter feed is Slate Gist. We are now on Yo. Our name is Podcast. Just Podcast. Yo us, yo. To sign up for the daily newsletter that hits your inbox the moment the show goes live, it's slate.com slash gist email. Email the gist at slate.com. I am a unique creature like no other. To wit, I find the last episode of Lost a little weak. I think it's fun to mock Nickelback. And I desperately wanted a Hungry Hungry Hippos game as a kid, then barely ever played it. I also have a one-of-a-kind podcast sign-off. Thanks for listening.